and I'm guessing that it's recording right now. I'm going to put this in my pocket. If it doesn't turn out, it doesn't turn out. That's fine. Our recorder apparently is at home. All right. And so I grew up in which my family, my media family, we did practice Halloween. The night before, when I don't know, I just assume this is the way everybody is, apparently not, but it was mischief night. Did anyone ever grow up with mischief yeah, night? Yeah, you had a bar of soap in one hand and an egg in the other. Well, no, you didn't either. Your parents didn't know about the egg. And, yeah, you would would just wreak havoc on people's windshields, and that was just so cool to put soap on people's windows, I guess. Now, as a a teen, or excuse me, as a preteen, soap was for little kids, you know. We we did the heavier-duty stuff. And there were many times in which I had to outrun the police. It was that bad. Just saying. Jesus got a hold of your pastor, though, and changed him. Thank you, Lord. The last week I... No. And so, you know, we would grow up and we would... When we would go out trick-or-treating and we would dress up as, you know, vampires and werewolves and just scary stuff. And we would bring not, you know, not these small little, you know, can you see some of these kids and they've got these little jack-o'-lanterns? I'm just thinking, man, when I was a kid, that was, no way. We brought pillowcases, okay? Pillowcases. And we had a competition, and I had three brothers. We were all close to in age, and we tried to see who could get the most candy. And we would, we, now I'm not exaggerating, but half the pillowcase, half of it was filled with candy. All right. And that was tremendous. Um, some of my brothers didn't fare too well when they ate all that candy, though. But uh, apparently Halloween comes from a Gaelic celebration over 2000 years ago in which come November 1st, their pagan belief, because this is before Christ, their pagan belief was that November 1st, the veil between the natural realm and the spirit realm of ghosts and demons became the thinnest, whatever that's supposed to mean anyway. And so the, the, the people, Gael, the Gauls, they lived in Ireland and Great Britain, northern France. They would dress up in these scary costumes to ward off these demonic spirits and these ghosts, human spirits apparently, that walk the earth. And several hundred, over a thousand years later during the medieval ages, then priests and Christians began to adopt some of these similar things. And priests would actually go, from what I understand, door to door and offering prayers to people for their dead in exchange for food. And thus we have trick or treat. Now, I grew up where that was totally acceptable. Um, In my family, however, we have chosen not to participate in that. And I want uh, want us to look at a story today. And it's not based on Halloween, but it does take place one dark, stormy night. It is about graveyards, and it is about demons. But... The message that Mark is going to communicate to us, if anything, has everything to do with what is contrary to Halloween. And in celebrating demons, Jesus came to break those chains and to bring freedom and peace into our lives. So let's go ahead, and I want to read this passage to you in Mark. Actually, it starts in Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read two stories to you, and the reason why I'm doing this is because they're actually one story, and you'll see why as we go through this. So Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35, 
It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now, that is not a suggestion. You need to realize this is a command. In the Greek, it's in the imperative. So it's a command. Let's go over. This is Jesus' order. So leaving the crowd behind, they, his disciples, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious, excuse me, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet or peace, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. I want you to underline those words, completely calm. Then he said to the disciples, his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. That's verse one of chapter five. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Do you, do you get a picture, church, of the misery and the enslavement in this man? When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his feet excuse me, fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feed, was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed, that is, demonized, by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man or the demonized man. And told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. 
and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is two stories. They're really one before I get into it. Um, I grew up in public school. I actually mentioned this a few weeks ago, and very few of you were aware of this. But uh, in the public school system I grew up in, they would do show and tell. That means you brought something to school, maybe a baseball, and you talked a little bit about why you loved baseball or why you were so good at baseball. Um, Jesus does not do show and tell here. He does tell and show. Now, by that, I simply mean if we were to read, and we just didn't have time, at the beginning of this chapter, we would see Jesus sharing several parables. In the first parable, the sower and the seed, I'm going to go through this quickly. We kind of, he comes to the conclusion that the seed sown on the good ground produces 30, 60, 100 fold of fruit. And his disciples, no doubt, would be wondering, what is fruit and what does that look like? Now, we're seeing, since we're talking about the kingdom of God uh, all through this gospel, in the kingdom of God, for you being in the kingdom of God, what does fruit look like in your life? What does that look like? Then he moves on to another parable in which he says the lamp when, it, when it's placed in a room, it doesn't go under the bed where you can't see it. It goes on a lamp and it goes on something so it can shine light throughout the room. And then the question naturally would be, because Jesus doesn't really explain this too well or, or too deeply. <laughs> and the question then on the minds of his disciples would be something like this. What does it mean for that light, which generally would, rep- which would be- generally be a metaphor for truth, what does that mean for that light, maybe in my life, to shine and not be hidden? He then talks about a farmer who sows seed. He doesn't know how it grows, but eventually it begins to pop up through the ground. It germinates, and that one seed produces hundreds, thousands of seed in what we call corn on the cob. I love corn on the cob. Mm, lots of butter, salt, mm. But this produces what Jesus calls a harvest. What does a harvest in the kingdom of God look like? What does a harvest look like? And then lastly, he concludes with a parable about another seed. It's a mustard seed, smallest seed. When When it's planted and grows, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. And it says it becomes so large that the birds of the air can find shelter there or shade there. Now, it comes from an Old Testament story um, about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, in which he, as a king of his kingdom, becomes the largest tree and birds of the air can settle there, meaning that's where they find peace, protection, and provision. So right before we go into this story, You need to understand the disciples just spent a day with Jesus teaching them, and they're wondering, what is this fruit that we're supposed to produce? What is this light that I'm supposed to give off? What is in the kingdom of God? How is it that the seeds that planted in me, the truth, the gospel, becomes multiplied? How do I then impact people, and in such a way that people who come into the kingdom find peace, provision, and protection. These are the types of questions that they would have on their mind as they now move into this. And Jesus has had his moment of teaching. Now he's going to show them, and this is what we're going to see. We're going to see the answers to these questions in these two stories, which I'm going to say is one story. So the very first thing that Jesus says is, as he gathers his disciples together, it is evening. It's dark. It is time to go to the other side. So he commands them. He says, let's go to the other side. Now, I want you to see something here. 
as they obey his orders to go to the other side, when we step back to see the big picture, they actually come back the very next day. They apparently spend the night in the ship, and in the morning, they encounter the very reason why Jesus had them go to the other side. It was for one man. Now, technically, Matthew tells us there were two demonized men. Mark and Luke tell us that there was one. We know then that there were at least two. But one of them becomes the focal point for both Mark and Luke's gospel. And I'm going to suggest it's because there was such an amazing impact on this man. It was so evident. And I think we see that at the end of the story that we read that I read to you. So as we go through this this morning, I'm going to focus on the one man. So let me word it this way. Jesus, his sole intention of traveling all the way across like seven miles and back was for one man. Now, we would think that that seems almost insignificant. Jesus spends an entire day, two days to minister to one man. That's it. You know, it's really easy in a world of 7 billion people to feel very insignificant. And yet Jesus does not feel that way whatsoever. He saw this man as his goal, as his mission, as the command that he received from the Father. This man who had been tormented by demons was not in any way insignificant in the eyes of Jesus. When we are called, to serve the Lord, and it seems like such an insignificant way to impact someone. Jesus does not see it that way. Jesus views serving in the kingdom as potentially powerful and impacting and life-changing. We just don't always see it that way. Many times we see our own personal ministry as very insignificant. Jesus does not see it that way. Jesus does not see your life that way. Jesus, once you've been brought into his kingdom, does not see your ministry that way. So there was for only one reason that Jesus had them cross the sea, for one man. The second thing that I want us to see, and this is not in chronological order, it's the exact opposite, but to get from there to the other side to minister to that one man nearly cost everyone's lives. A dark, stormy night. How many of you have ever read a story that starts off one dark, stormy night, right? And it's dark. I personally don't like dark. I don't like deep water. Um, I actually have fears probably to this day of dark water, of deep, dark water. And here they are. And apparently in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, now it's seven miles away. If you set sail, you might be able to get there in one hour, two maximum. Simple. But apparently when they land, it's daytime. And so they spend the night in the boat. Jesus just wants to get a jump on his day. But as they're going over there, here they are. Here's the disciples. Understand this. They're obeying Jesus. But by obeying him, they find themselves in the middle of a storm 
that nearly takes their lives. Now, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Understand that of the 12 disciples, four of them minimally, we don't know all of them, four of them minimally were experts in the sea. They were fishermen. They've been out on this sea literally hundreds, if not thousands of times. This was, you know, this was like their backyard. Storms come up very suddenly in the Sea of Galilee as cool air comes through the mountains from the ocean, from the Mediterranean Sea. They, it comes through the mountains, and as it meets the, Mediter- uh, the Sea of Galilee, there's generally a, humid, a warm, humid air that hangs over the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> and when the cold air hits it, you can have a storm in a, in a very short time. Luke tells us, and, and understand, again, four of these guys, they're experts in these boats. They are the ones assessing the situation. And they are the ones who are claiming, Luke puts it this way. He says that they were, well, excuse me, I've got to find my, my, my place here. Luke says that the boat was swamped and in great danger. This is what they are now communicating to Jesus. Mark says, the disciples tell him, look, doesn't it matter to you that we're about to die? Don't you care about this? What, what are you doing sleeping in the back of the boat, Jesus? Now, there's apparently a couple of boats with them, but in the boat, Jesus, he's, like, he's, he's conked out. Maybe he's had a long day. Maybe teaching really exhausted Jesus, but he's, he's back in the boat. He's exhausted. He's sleeping through it all. He is at peace, and the rest are totally in fear as they're about to die. Please understand, they're just these men. They're trying to follow Jesus. They're trying to obey him, and Jesus commands them to go through the storm. It didn't just happen by accident. Jesus knew this. On our way there, this storm it, it, it could swamp the boat. And the, these disciples, these fishermen knew if this boat gets swamped, we're going to drown. We are not going to be able to survive this storm. And they cry out to Jesus. And Jesus stands up in the boat and he says, peace, be still. It freaks these disciples out. We, we would have to ask Jesus, why would you want to make it so hard? You know, after they stepped back and assessed these events that took that transpired over the last day and a half, at night, all day the next day, with the demonized man. We went over there. We risked our lives for one man. Okay, Matthew says two. But one man truly transformed. I don't get it. Why would, why would Jesus command us and in so doing risk our lives? And I'm going to tell you, church, when we're talking about a conflict of two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom that Jesus is the king of, that is, in, that is uh, impressing upon and breaking through into this realm of darkness that, that inhabits our world, into this broken, fallen world. Jesus is establishing his kingdom. And Daniel 2, it is that rock that was carved out of the mountain, hit the feet of the statue, and is now becoming, the, is becoming a large rock that fills the earth. That is what we, are, we learn about in Daniel. This is D- Daniel 2. This is the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' kingdom that, is, that he is establishing. And it's going to grow just like that mustard seed. And it's going to fill the earth. And people are going to find peace and rest there. I believe this demoniac found that peace. 
But I'm going to tell you right now, you're in a conflict of kingdoms, of light and darkness, of good and evil. It is not a yin and a yang. It is not that the power of evil and the power of good are in this wrestling match and may the better man win. It is not like that whatsoever. It is God himself with supreme authority. And we see that here. He even commands the winds and the waves to be still and they are. And some of you, you're trying so hard to serve God in his kingdom, and it is so hard for you. And it feels like you are up against so much of the devil's darkness coming against you. And you feel like he constantly kicks your feet out from under you, pulls the rug out from under you. And he's like, come on, Jesus. I'm, I'm here. You remember, I'm the guy that's trying to serve you. You changed my life, and I'm going to bless, I'm going to minister to others. And it's so hard. And there they are in the midst of it, trying their best to obey Jesus. And they almost lose their lives. Now, from a human perspective, I'm speaking right now. Almost. But from Jesus' perspective, guys, I, I, I got this. I, I told you to go into the spring. Don't you think that I am sovereign in it? My God, my Father will take care of us. Where is your faith? And I'm just going to let you know right now, in this process of ministry that God has you in, in this process of extending his kingdom into the kingdom of darkness, it will be hard and it will test your faith. And and Jesus understands this, but he needs you to realize that the process of getting from here to there is just as important as what happens in ministering and seeing people set free because God is building in your life. There's many things he's doing, but faith and love. Now, understand that Jesus, Scripture says, only said what the Father told him to say, and he did only what the Father told him to do. And in crossing this sea, I am sure that Jesus was aware of what was going to happen. And Jesus, Father, I'm willing to obey. Are you sure that this this is what I this is what you want us to do? Because my guys are going to freak out. And Jesus realizes that because in his heart there is such love for that man on the other side of that sea, he's willing to do it, and he's willing to see his disciples completely freak out so that they too would love people and have such faith because ministry will require both of those elements. It will require you in this kingdom to be strong in faith and not waver. We waver, church. But we're in this process in which your faith is being tested and strengthened. Hold on to that faith. Pursue Jesus. He is the stiller of the storm And he is the one who set this demoniac free. He's got this. Whatever you're facing and you're like, he has this. But he's also wanting to cultivate you, not just the faith, but love. Do you love people enough to take a risk? Now, speaking from a human perspective again, because there's so much in this conflict between two kingdoms, it feels risky. In God's eyes, there's no risk. He's got this. He understands the outcome. But from our perspective... Faith is risky. Church, that's why it's called faith. That's why it's we step out and we believe. I cannot see, 
it feels like we're going to drown. And Jesus is strengthening your faith. He's doing that in, in your lives right now, whether you can see it or not. He is seeking to strengthen your faith. So they make it through to the other side. Can I ask you, as you look there in chapter 5, verse 1, where do they land? Where exactly do they land? Let me tell you where they don't land. They don't land on a seaport. They don't land near a city or a town or a village. They land out in the middle of nowhere. The closest landmark is a grave, a little further down an embankment, more than likely probably close to the town uh, later known as Cursa. Regardless, but there is no town nearby. Can you imagine his disciples? They spent the night in the boat, they land, and they're looking at Jesus like, Jesus, seriously? You, we just risked our lives. You want us to stop here? Where, where's the people? Where are we going to get the masses? I mean, it's all about numbers, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, you know what? It's really not. Today, it is about one man. Now, somewhere in their dialogue, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, of course, but can't you just feel they're, they're, there's no town anywhere, no port, and, and we're, they're landing, and they just risked their lives to get here. Jesus has a plan. He's always, he always has a plan. Always. Part, guys, right here. Here's a great place. This is where we're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, really, Jesus? Up, up here. Like, I don't see anybody except maybe that guy. Yeah, you know what, Jesus? You know what? He's running to us. He does not look friendly. They're stepping out of the boat, and the man is running to them. What type of a man is this? He is a man from the graveyard. He is a man from a graveyard. He is demonized with the lead demon whose name is Legion. My name is Legion, for we are many. This is not some schizophrenic or someone with a multiple personality. He may have that as a side effect, but these demons are absolutely real. Now, Roman Legion is 6,000. I don't know if the demon chose that name, even though there may have been only 2,000 because there was only 2,000 pigs, but every single one of them ran into the sea. So there's at least 2,000 demons, maybe six. But there's a whole lot of demons in this man. He is completely demonized. He is completely controlled. He lives in the graveyard. And living in the graveyard then tells me that number one, as I'm trying to find my place here. He is separated. He is separated from the town. They try binding him because he's a violent man. It's possible he's killed someone. We don't know. But he was bound and he was guarded for a reason. And he would break those chains and break those fetters are the are the, are the bonds of iron around your wrist and your feet. And he broke them. This is the type of violent man. He is demonized, living in the, this graveyard, and he is isolated. He is alone. He is by himself. He is abandoned. 
Now, I realize that this story, forgive me, by the way, when I, when I call this a story, I think sometimes in our present-day vernacular, we lose the understanding of what, the, for some of us, story means something that's made up, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an event, a real event that changed the lives of everyone involved, except maybe Jesus. And this man is isolated. I want you to realize that as we go through this, I want you to be able to identify with this man. And, and by doing that, I'm not suggesting that you're demonized. I'm not saying that. But do know this, that Satan's tactics are the same with everyone. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When he attacks, he can stir up our anger. And I'm, I'm going to focus on anger today. I'm going to focus on how anger and th that type of an emotion can control us. Satan's goal is to have you controlled. That's his goal. His goal is to destroy what God has created, especially the image of God in us. This is why this man would cut himself. These demons wanted to destroy him. Let me just say this, though. There is nowhere in Scripture that's ever recorded where a demon destroyed completely a man. If anything, God said to Satan, you can harm him, but do not take his life. In Romans 9, excuse me, Revelation 9, the locusts that come out of the abyss, more than likely a picture of demons, they sting like a scorpion, but they are, and they harm mankind, but they cannot take their life. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that Satan's goal necessarily is to kill you, but he wants you hating God. He wants you destroying in any way the image of God in you. He wants you hating yourself. He wants you hating God. He wants you hating others. See, that's what hurts and anger and bitterness begin to do inside of us. When they go unchecked, even in Christians, anger hurts. We lash out. Satan's goal is to separate you, just like this man, separated. He wants to separate you from others. He wants you to be that lone ranger. He wants you to be so hurt that you're constantly guarding and protecting your heart. You cannot trust anyone. This is where Satan wants you. This is his ploy. This is his game. He loves it. This is his darkness trying to invade in your light, if I could word it that way. He separated this man. He will seek to separate you. The second thing we see is that he indwelling him on the graveyard. That's where death is. That's not where life is. The, the, the devil has this goal of bringing death, spiritual death, not just isolation, but isolation from God. He does not want you looking to Jesus as your source and as your strength, as your life. He wants you angry with God. He wants you crossing through those seas and experiencing the storms and saying, God, I don't get it. Why are you always against me? He wants you not wrestling in prayer. He wants you shaking your fist at God. He wants you keeping God at an arm's length or more. He wants to alienate you. Don't get into the word and prayer. No. Yeah, see where that's led you. 
You wanted to serve Jesus, and look what he did. He brought you through a storm and almost killed you. Lies. So here is this man in the graveyard, and all he sees is death. Now, this man is completely unsaved. You, my friends, and tr- you who trust in Jesus, you are saved. You have eternal life in you. And Satan wants to do everything he can to put a chokehold on that life in you. And he will stir up hurts and anger, lack of forgiveness, bitterness, alienate you. And starts bringing spirit, a spiritual death. An alienation from God. And then the last thing that we see is he's a man who is violent, cutting himself. Can I just tell you this? In Matthew 18, a very sobering story is told by Jesus of a person who came before his king and owed him in our vernacular, it would have been millions of dollars. He couldn't pay this off. Anybody here, by the way, have a million dollars if you were in debt be able to pay it off? He couldn't pay it off. It was beyond his abilities, and the king forgave him of his debt when he pleaded with him. But the man went out, and when a fellow servant owed him five bucks, he he said, I'm going to throw you into jail. And so the guy came before the king, was brought before the king, because people had seen this and heard it. And the king said, you are so wicked. Why couldn't you forgive? Now, I am not preaching that parable today. But at the very end, Matthew 18, go to the very end of that verse. And it says that because he refused to forgive, the king turned him over to the tormentor. He was put in jail, but he was turned over to the tormentors. And I'm going to tell you this, that when you give a foothold to the devil, And that is found in Ephesians 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. It's in connection with anger. That's what anger does. Lack of forgiveness will eat you alive. Those tormentors, however you want to see it in the spirit realm, Jesus doesn't tell us But demons attack and they oppress and we open the door to them when we refuse to forgive. And I'm going to just tell you right now that this man, he was caught up in that torment and torture and he could not get rid of it. He could not find freedom. And he had been turned over to the tormentors. And I'm just going to tell you this. Satan is not your friend. He wants, he is like the thief in John 10 that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you tormented. He wants you hating God. He wants you hating his people. He wants you isolated. He wants you looking inward and not outward. He wants you bitter. He wants you hurting, unforgiving, and hating. And I'm going to tell you this, as a saved man or woman of God, The devil is able to do that. But there is a way out. And the way out that we we need is the very same way out that Mark tells us here. We're going to see a few clues. I've got about five, ten minutes here. I'm going to wrap this up. 
what I want to share with you, because you may find that you are just like in so many ways this demoniac in which you feel life being squeezed from you. You have put up protective walls. When people hurt you, you plan revenge. But of course, as a Christian, you don't call it revenge, do you? You call it something like justice, right? And we get ourselves off the hook. But in the heart, there is hurt and anger and the lack of forgiveness. And there is a seed of bitterness. And maybe that bitterness has been taking root. Today, Jesus wants to set you free. Like he set this man free. I'm not saying that you are demonized. But I tell you what, when we refuse to forgive, you will certainly be oppressed. So what happens? When Jesus lands, off in the distance is this man, bound up in the graveyard, isolated, etc. And he comes running to Jesus. Now, maybe initially they're just wondering, wow, this guy, uh, he wants to come join us. He wants to listen to what you have to say, Jesus. The man gets close enough and they can see, no doubt, he has wild hair. His clothes are torn. He is filthy. They're kind of wondering, oh, goodness, when was the last time he took a bath? As he gets closer, they realize, Jesus, I'm not sure this is a really friendly guy. Can you imagine a demonized guy living in the graveyard like this, running at you? And Jesus' disciples, how are, are they? Oh, yeah, yeah, come on down, just as you are. That's right. Hey, let's start singing that song, by the way. Just as, come on down. They're probably wondering what is going to happen here. This is freaking them out. And Jesus, no doubt, says, guys, I've got this. I don't know what's going on, but if I were there, I would be kind of wondering some of those things, right? And the man, when he comes to Jesus, he doesn't have a a, a weapon in his hand to hurt Jesus. He comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. Now, here's my question to you. Is it the man that's falling at Jesus' feet, or is it the demon? Can I just tell you this? The scripture doesn't tell us. I think it's very clear. Why would the demons, knowing who Jesus is, come running to him? They would want to run away. Would they not? Unless they were going to try and hurt him. He's got nothing in his hands. The scripture doesn't say that. The man realizes the bondage that he is in, the desperation that he is in. And for some of us, you are in that same desperation, pleading with God, set me free from this hurt and this anger, Lord God, set me free. And and, and, and the man runs to Jesus. Maybe he's heard about him. Maybe there's something inside of the demons saying, this is the Holy One of God. And the man knows this. We don't know, but he falls at Jesus' feet. And there is only one explanation for this. That man wants freedom. So that is step number one. Trust me, the demons did not want this. The man did. But the man was helpless. There was nothing he could do but run and fall at Jesus' feet. But then the demons begin to take over and speak. Why have you come here? You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to torture us? Have you come into, now there's reasons for why they would be saying this that I'm not going to get into. And, and the torment that, that demons go through as we piece together certain scriptures and why demons even possess or demonize people, inhabit them. But this man wants freedom and the demons do not. 
they actually, Scripture says, they actually find rest there. And Jesus will have nothing about this. This man has come to him, and there is something of, of, of a longing in his heart for freedom. That he can't even verbalize it. And Jesus just speaks a word. Come out of him, you evil spirit. And the spirits have to obey. He casts them into the pigs, 2,000 of them. They run down an embankment and destroy themselves. Jesus set the man free. Jesus came. See, man, man has no idea how to deal with such a person. They bind him up. They do everything they can to restrain the evil. They, they attack the symptoms. You want to be free from your anger? Do you want to be free from this problem? Well, you just do this, 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 this. That's all you got to do. And there is one answer, church, and I'm not opposed to all of those, but there is one answer, and that answer has got to be in Jesus. Jesus. He is the king of this kingdom. He is the one who brings light and truth. He is the one that when he breaks in onto a person's life, sets them free, not man. And is it the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow, including the demons, and every tongue confess, whoa, he is Lord. Man, it's binding him with chains. Jesus speaks a word and sets him free. That is the authority of our Jesus. That is the power that he has. So the man comes out of the tombs. He leaves it behind as we need to. He falls at Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He falls at his feet. He humbles himself. He cries out. Though the demons begin to take over almost immediately. But here is this last thing I'm going to conclude with. When you are coming to Jesus, I'm going to encourage you, come to him constantly. Come to him constantly. When this man is healed, what's happened to him? The townsfolk, they come. What do they see? What do they observe? They find the man sitting there. Luke tells us he's actually sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's where you need to be. That's where I need to be. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. In his right mind. Clarity. He's able to think. The demons are no longer controlling him. He has freedom. He wants to follow Jesus. I, I, I want to follow you, Jesus. Where, where are you going? I want to come with you. And Jesus says, you know what? I've given you a mission now. And Jesus, listen, church, Jesus is giving you a mission. Go, he says. Do you see that at the very end? Let me read it to you. He tells the man, he says, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Testify, church. Be like that lamp, not under the, under the bed, but on the lampstand, up high enough to spread light throughout the room. He wants to use you and the testimony of your freedom to be able to now speak into people's lives and call them out of the darkness where they're in bondage to the enemy he wants to bring them into this same experience of freedom that's available to everyone who's in this kingdom of Jesus Christ. Go home. Tell people. 
Now, I might be speculating a little bit here. Jesus does no ministry on that side of the Sea of Galilee. He just doesn't. But somehow, you'll read this. We're going to come across it a little bit later. We don't know if it's a year later. But somehow, 5,000 men show up when Jesus crosses that sea in, the, in a similar, just north, but in a similar region. 5,000. Where did they, how do they know about Jesus? Now, maybe they kind of heard about it, and they, they kind of gathered. Or maybe, just maybe, this man did an amazing job of telling people. And the word began to spread about who this Jesus, who this liberator is. He speaks a word, and people are free. He, he has spoken to you. If you're saved, he has set you free. Don't go back into bondage in your anger, in your hurts, in your bitterness, in your unforgiveness. You come to Jesus and you sit at his feet and you just allow him to begin to speak truth. Maybe he needs to repair some damage that was done in your heart when you were a child. And then when you were a teen, you were an adult, in your marriage, Jesus is the only one. I can't do that, church. You know, you, when I pray for anybody, I, the first thing I pray is, God, you called me to be their pastor, their counselor, and their help, but I can't change them. And I know that. I am not Superman. I am not Jesus. He has that preeminent place. And my only goal is to point people to Jesus. As you traverse to, to cross your Sea of Galilee and you go through hard times, understand that when you minister to people, you are representing Jesus to them. And it's this Jesus that can set, set captives free, that, that can speak just a word. And bondages are broken. Man's ideas to control, to restrain evil like they did with that man. What good was that? But Jesus, he'll speak to the heart, your heart. When he uses you to go home and tell people, he's going to empower you by the spirit to speak to their heart. Truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that sets people free. Not just to rescue them from their sin and forgive, I mean, to forgive them of their sin, but to rescue them from their sin, to pull them out of that bondage and set them on a pathway of freedom and pursuing this relationship with Jesus Christ, sitting at his feet. That's where we need to be, church. Sitting at his feet. That's where you're going to receive healing. That's where you're going to feel the ability, know and experience the ability to forgive and come out of those chains. Experience this fullness of life that's available for everyone in Christ. Amen? Can you stand with me? You know, when I, when I grew up, I had, <clears throat> I had a lot of hurts, a lot of insecurities. I was an angry young man when I came to Christ. When I, after I came to Christ, my brother Rob and I, and you know how tall Rob is, he's about four times my size, I would get into fights with my brother. Stupid as I was, even as a Christian, I would get into fights. And I would argue with my mom, and I'd say, Mom, I don't get it. You know, I'm trying so hard to follow the Lord, and my brother Rob constantly causes fights. You know what my mom said? She, says, she said a cliche that frustrated me at first, 
But then as I allowed the spirit to speak to my heart, it began to point me in the right direction. She said this, Mike, it takes two to fight. Have you ever heard that before? It takes two to fight. And the Lord began to show me, Mike, there's still so much hurt in your heart. You think your brother's the one who's starting these fights, but you are equally at fault. When the Lord began showing me that, that hurt, I thought I was so much better than that. I thought I was freer than that. And God had to show me, Mike, you need Jesus to revolutionize your heart. And when he showed me this, it took about an entire year of just sitting at Jesus' feet, recognizing how weak and hurt I was and angry I was for Jesus to begin that deep heart ministry and healing in my life. So I'm going to close in prayer right now. And I'm going to ask that Jesus heal your heart too. Because some of you are hurting and you need this freedom as well as I. Let me have the lights. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that when we were in bondage, you crossed our Sea of Galilee just for me. You loved me that much. You died on the cross for my freedom, for my rescuing, my salvation. Jesus, you have pursued me. And even in my rationalization away of my sin, you still spoke through people to show me just how much I still needed you. Would you speak this morning, God? Would you speak to our hearts freedom, life, loving connection with others in the body of Christ? forgiveness would you show us Lord that pathway what does it look like to sit at your feet and Lord as you're doing this would, would you use us would you call us to go home and share the good things that Jesus has done for me we're, we're standing here Lord and we're just saying we need you we, we desperately desperately need you. And I just pray right now that the Spirit of God would begin to speak so clearly to every single person here this morning and how much they need you, Lord. How much I need you. And that, Father, that as we come before you, that you would speak freedom over us. Just speak the word, Lord God. We are hungry for you, longing for you, standing before you, sitting at your feet as a word, crying out to you. I want this freedom, God. I want more of it. More of it, God. Speak the word, Lord. Into every life here today. For some, maybe that's salvation. For others, it's a greater measure of freedom. But speak. Just speak the word. In Jesus' name.